Well, we are going to read from God's Word, and we're going to read from Deuteronomy, and it'll come up on the screen for you, but if you have a Bible, we're reading from Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting at sentence 5 and going through to sentence 9. Deuteronomy 4, 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering and take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that is set before you today? Only take care. And keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they make you depart from all your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. This is the word of God. Hey guys, it is great to be here with you guys this morning. My name is Jacob. If we haven't met before, um, and it is great as always to see some new faces here and so for you, uh, welcome. We love having you here. We're going to be getting into, into Deuteronomy now. If that means nothing to you, hopefully in about half an hour, at least you'll kind of know what that's all about. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting into this series, but I would just like to start by praying that God would be speaking to us through his word. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just want to thank you that, um, that we have this opportunity to come and to sit in relative peace and quiet and to hear from you and to spend some time reflecting on who you are and what you've done, to read your words, to think through what they have to say to us today. And so we just ask that you would be at work in us, that you would be, have us be ready to be, um, just to see you, to, to, to listen to you. Um, and to have our lives changed by you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't normally like sharing my dreams with people, and partially that's because when someone is telling you their dream, it's always more interesting to them than it ends up being to other people, and that's how it kind of works. But also, I don't like giving people any more of a window into my subconscious thoughts than they need to have. But despite both of those things, You were all in my dream uh, (laughs) last week, and so here we go. Um, I dreamt we were having a church lunch, and the way we decided to do it was we'd split the church into two groups. Jez was making lunch for one group. He was making a a bolognese, and I was making lunch for my half of the church, and I was making pig's ears. And (laughs) it was a stress dream because I didn't have much time um, and I, or, you know, f- the dream, I think, began roughly around the time that I was removing the ears from the pig myself. But throughout the dream, the, the more I boiled the pig's ears, the harder they got. And I just wanted them to be soft so they'd be edible. And I just got more and more stressed that everyone in my half of the church was going to be frustrated that they had to eat these really hard pig's ears when other people were going to get to enjoy Jez's um, spaghetti. And then I woke up in a sweat. Now, you're welcome to analyze that as much as you'd like. Is that revealing some kind of deep insecurity that Jez's sermons are the equivalent of a bolognese and maybe when I get up here it's a bit more like chewing on a pig's ear? I don't know. But 
I was, that, was just, that was just my stress dream of the last few weeks. And I was chatting, chatting to um, some people about stress dreams a couple of weeks ago. And, and the, what happens when you have, I'm guessing everyone's had a stress dream of some nature. You end up in a situation that you've got no reason for being in. It could just never happen in real life. You've got no kind of context or backstory, but you just accept it. And you end up just kind of in the moment, in the situation, not questioning why am I making pig's ears, why is this going on, and you just feel the absolute stress of it. I think that's what makes dreams often so, I guess, eerie and disorienting, is that they just occur in isolation. You're kind of in the moment in the dream, you've got no backstory, you've got no context, you're not part of anything bigger, you're just in some strange and bizarre moment. I think likewise, real life is at its most disorienting when you can't seem to place where you are at the moment or the experience that you're going through um, or your situation as some in some part of a bigger narrative or story. When you find your life just kind of going through the motions, living in the moment, but not really sure why. No explanation of kind of why life is the way that it is, and no ultimate direction that's kind of guiding you towards an outcome. We long to find ourselves as part of a greater story. We don't want to just be a meaningless blip occurring in isolation, but part of something bigger. And the way that we think about the stories that we find ourselves in massively affects how we live our life. The philosopher Alastair McIntyre once wrote, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? What you believe about the story that you're in will drive your behavior. If you believe the, I guess, the mainstream secular atheist type story, that there is no ultimate grand narrative, certainly not an intentional one, we're just caught between a chaotic collection of atoms and down the track another chaotic collection of atoms, that, that will lead you to view your life in a certain way and it will impact your behaviours and your decisions. If you believe the consumerist narrative that life is fundamentally a story from uh, beginning with nothing or very little to ending your life with hopefully a lot more and, and getting as much as you can, that is going to drive your decisions and your life and your motivations. And if you believe the Christian story which we believe is a true story here, that before anyone here in this room existed, things happened in history that have radically changed how we need to think about life. And there are some, thi some things set in stone that are going to happen in the future that should have a bearing in our life today. If you believe that and are aware of that, that will affect your life. And what the Christian worldview would say is that the key to living well is remembering our place in a bigger story. Now that, that statement's actually been true for God's people at all times in history. And so today, as Anna mentioned, we're starting a, this book, Deuteronomy, which follows the story of, uh, of a section of God's people in a very different time and in a very different place. And as far as parts of the Bible go, it probably feels very foreign because it is. It's written three, over 3,000 years ago set 3,000 years ago, on pretty much the exact opposite side of the world. And remarkably, what I hope is going to happen over the next 10 weeks as we go through this book is that we're going to see things in this book that show us about the core of who God is and what he's like, as well as offering us some timeless truths about how we're to live in light of him. And today as we kind of launch into this book and just see the very beginning of it, we see a call to God's people that is, I think, one that we need to hear as well, which is that we need to not forget the story that we're a part of. 
So I don't know what the idea of spending 10 weeks in Deuteronomy means to you. That might mean nothing. If this is your first time at a church, you've probably not even heard the word Deuteronomy before, and so that's just that. Or maybe you've been around church for a while, and, and maybe even the idea of spending 10 weeks in Deuteronomy instinctively feels boring on some level because it's from the Old Testament, it's a weird name, maybe it's part of the Bible that you kind of flick through as you're trying to get to something that you feel is a bit more relevant. And today what I'm just hoping to show is that there's actually a whole lot of relevance in this book. And just to kind of get across some of the basics. And I feel like we're going to be looking at the name Deuteronomy every week for 10 weeks. We might as well understand what it is. Deuteronomy is a Greek word and it literally just means second law. Deuteros is second, nomos, law. It's the second law. And that's a helpful just as a little reminder what we're going to be looking at. Because what the book of Deuteronomy is, for the most part, is a collection of speeches by this guy Moses laying out a set of laws. And he's doing it, funnily enough, for the second time. And it's the fifth and final book of the first section of the Bible. So if you were reading the Bible cover to cover, this would be the fifth book you would come across. And if you had been reading it from cover to cover, you would have read Genesis, which is the story of the creation of the world, but then God narrowing down his focus to this guy Abraham, giving him a, a promise that his descendants would grow into a great nation. You would have then read the book of Exodus, which tells this rescue story of God getting his people, the Israelites, who are in slavery in Egypt, out of Egypt, taking them to a place called Mount Sinai, where he, where he gives them the law and the Ten Commandments. You would have then read the book of Leviticus, which is just a big fleshing out of these laws even more. You would have then come across the book of Numbers, which tells the story of the failure of these people, of the Israelites, to enter into the land they were promised. And it gives an account of them wandering in the desert for 40 years. And then Deuteronomy, the fifth book, starts with Moses in the wilderness, in this desert, on the edge of the promised land with his people, getting them ready to finally cross the Jordan River and enter into their new home. And so it's helpful to realize that where we start this book, a lot has happened already. And so helpfully, the book of Deuteronomy, because so much has happened already, actually begins with a bit of a catch-up. It's a bit like when you go in and watch um, a new Marvel movie, which is something I've pretty much given up doing. It used to be the case that Iron Man comes out, you just go and you watch a story of a man dressed as a robot, and happy days. But now if you want to go see a Marvel movie, you need to have watched 50 plus hours of content to even make sense of it. So if you're like me, you end up kind of in, in the car looking on YouTube, trying to watch recaps, so you're not getting punished because you didn't want to see Ant-Man and Wasp Woman or what the, whatever the, the latest thing has been that you need to understand to make sense of what's going on. Or it's like when you jump into a TV season and they, and they start by giving you the, just the short version of the season before. That's actually what happens at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy. Moses gets up and he says to everyone, here's what's happened so far. And so that's what we're going through today. This, the first four chapters, the recap, that's what we're trying to cover. If you've got a Bible in front of you, that's going to be helpful if you go through it, but I'll try to get things up on the screen as well um, as, we, as we cover the recap of the first four chapters. So Moses is in the desert and he's gathered together the Israelites who have been living as nomads in the desert for 40 years. And that means that everyone there who is under the age of 40 wasn't even alive when they were rescued from Egypt. They weren't even alive when the Ten Commandments were given. They've got no memories of that. And so Moses takes them back 40 years to get them up to speed with their own story. And we'll pick it up in verse 5 of chapter 1. It says, Moses began to expound this law, saying, 
The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. So, Moses begins his recap by laying out that God had offered his people a gift. He takes them back to 40 years prior at Horeb, which is just another word for Mount Sinai where the, where the law was given, where they were taken immediately after they'd been freed from slavery in Egypt. And he picks up this story with God saying to them, all right, it's time to leave this mountain and it's time to go to a place that I have promised you. This place which is in our modern day Israel. And he's saying, I've given you this good land All you have to do is go and take it. Go and receive this gift. But rather than going straight away into the promised land, the Israelites decide to dip their toe in and to send some spies. If we jump forward to verse 22, we see the account of this. Where Moses says, Then all of you came near me and said, Let us send men before us, that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, it is a good land that the Lord God is giving us. So they go, they take a peek at the land and they see it's great. There's lots of food. It's going to be fruitful. It is a good place to be. And so you'd think at that point, well, then it's kind of obvious. We'll go in and just receive the gift. But in the very next verse, we see Israel rebel. And this is what Moses wants to remind them of in their story. In verse 26 it says, Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. So what's going on here is, despite the fact that God had offered them this gift and promised them this land, and it was a good land that they had seen, they realize that the land is held by the Amorites, and so there is some degree of trust that is required to take it. That God will, in fact, allow them to go into this land and take what has been given. But they look at the fortifications that the people that are living there had made, and their armies, and their size, and they say to themselves, this is a bit of a death trap. It's, it's not going to work. We're not going to be able to get in. It's too hard. But what I find interesting in, in their response is that they're not just simply saying or doubting whether God is able to give them the land. What's actually going on here is they're doubting God's heart. I don't know if you saw that line in there where they say, the Lord hated us. Often disobedience towards God or, or sin reveals what we think of his character deep down. This is a common theme throughout the Bible that often when we're doubting, we're not just disbelieving what God can do, we're disbelieving what God is like. What goes on in the Israelites is something twists inside them from going in one sentence saying, look, it's a really good land, to all of a sudden saying, but God must hate us. And it's that feeling that leads them not to obey God. I think here we get a picture of what, what sin is like. It's this twisting of the heart to make us actually feel negatively about God who is perfectly good. It's akin to the experience of paranoia. 
I've unfortunately been able to see what real paranoia looks like in, in a friend um, who suffers from schizophrenia, where they're able to get into a state where they feel that everyone is out to get them. Their family, their friends, the people that care about them most, they, they look at it and say, no, nah, they're, they're, they're conspiring against me. They don't have my good at heart. And what's so hard in that situation is when you're trying to actually help someone in that, in that zone is that anything that you can do to help can be reinterpreted as a threat. Because why would you accept help from someone you believe at your absolute core is trying to harm you? I think that's what's going on when we, when we find ourselves inclined towards rejecting God or rebelling or sinning or whatever you want to call it. It's when we don't feel that he loves us or that he has our best in heart. It's when on some level we stop believing that he's good. Because if the, if the thought that we're feeling deep down is, if God loved me, he wouldn't let me go through this. Or he wouldn't let me have this desire that is going unmet. Or he wouldn't ask me to do this hard thing. Or he wouldn't hold this position on this which seems just so difficult to me. When, when we start believing that God isn't actually that good, it's really hard to trust him, isn't it? It's hard to follow him. And that's what's going on with the Israelites here. So they say, look, God isn't, God isn't for us. He actually hates us. And so what they do is they decide not to go into the land that God has given them. Then as Moses moves through his recap, he, he reminds them that because of this, they were judged. In verse 34, it says, And the Lord heard your words and was angered. And he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. We see here an account of God's judgment. Where God is saying, look, if you don't believe that I'm actually going to give you this good land, well, the consequence of that is you're not going to get the good land. And instead of that, they're told that they're going to wander the desert for 40 years until all those who were adults at this time had passed away and those who were children were now grown. And what we see here is a part of God's character that God is not a God that can abide sin and rebellion. He doesn't just overlook at it. He, he judges. And the idea of God being a God who judges is, is, I think, for many people, a really hard thing to, to wrestle with. We, don't, we, we feel a bit uncomfortable about that idea from time to time, but just at least in this instance here, it's helpful just, I think, to even reflect on just how, in one level, how fair and proportionate the judgment is. The consequence is fitting. The consequence for not trusting that God will give them this good land is that they don't get to have the good land. God's judgment oftentimes is actually allowing people to even pursue the desires of their own hearts to their own misery. C.S. Lewis has summed up this idea when he's talking about God's judgment where he says this, he says, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. That they're the options. It's to, it's to believe God, to trust him and obey him and get the good that comes with that. Or it's to not, and then God say, in that case, have it your way. And that's what happens with the Israelites. God says, have it your way, and they choose to rebel, and God honors that. They forego the gift. But then as Moses continues his recount, that's not where it ends. He then reminds the Israelites that on the other side of judgment, they're also shown grace. In chapter 2, verse 7, Moses goes on, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the works of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So Moses reminds the people that whilst they were out for these 40 years wandering in the desert, God actually provided them. He fed them every single day in that time. He protected them from the other peoples that were around them. 
And he kept these people together so that they could have this moment where they can receive a second chance. And so Moses is wanting the people to not forget that they have a gracious God. They have a good and loving God who, is, who keeps his promises. That he's a God who shows grace. Often through the Bible, the metaphor that's used for this is, is it's as though God is married to an adulterous spouse. That his people are like, like a cheating spouse that God welcomes back again and again and again, not because they deserve to be welcomed back, but because of the depth of his own faithfulness and commitment to his promises and love, despite the, despite the faithlessness of the people. And so Moses goes on in the next chapter to recount for how 40 years, again and again and again, God shows himself as being faithful and protecting and loving and good. To this point now where, where Moses is, where a new generation is standing on the same ground as their mothers and fathers, again prepared to go and receive the gift of the land. And now they're being told the same thing that the previous generation was told. In the beginning of chapter 4, we see Moses say, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. So that's where we're up to in the story. Moses saying, this is what's happened. You've now got a second chance. And the rest of the book of Deuteronomy is Moses going to be explaining through the law how not to blow the second chance. But the very first thing he says in, in, in this kind of chapter as he starts explaining what it is to not blow the second chance is don't forget. Don't forget your story. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 9. This is where we're going to spend just the, the final part of our time. Moses says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Here's the point Moses is trying to make. In order to live well, in order to receive the full benefits of what God has to offer, don't forget. Don't forget what you've seen. Don't forget what you've experienced. Don't, don't let these out of your heart because the, the, the shortest way to making the same mistake again would be to forget. To forget that God is good. To forget that God is a God who judges. To forget that God is a God of grace. To forget that God is a God who provides. That's the warning. And he wants them to hear that clearly, to say, You've got a story. You're part of something bigger. Do not forget it. And this warning that we'll, we'll keep up here is, I think, one that we need to hear as well. That this is actually just as true for us as it was true for Israel. Even though we're in a completely different time and a completely different place. That we've got the very same need to remember God's goodness, His provision, His grace, even though we're further along in the story than Israel was. Even though that fundamentally our key rescue isn't being rescued from slavery in Egypt, it's being rescued from sin and death. Even though our salvation wasn't through Moses leading them out of Egypt, our salvation is through Jesus. That the core piece of history that we're called to remember is that 2,000 years ago Jesus entered this world and willingly died in our place. That God showed in history his deep love and commitment for us. And in this story that we have has a great ending as well. The promise for Israel was entering the promised land, but for us it's the confidence and the, and the hope of spending eternity with the God who loves us. 
And if this is the story that you believe that you are in, that fills your life with a rich meaning and joy. When you're aware of this story, it it changes your priorities. It, It aligns them. It makes you resilient to life's challenges. It makes you just a joyfully confident person. And if this story is completely new to you, and this is like the first time you're hearing any of this, I want to just, just echo Anna's um, announcement about Alpha tomorrow night. That's a great context to be exploring this story and hearing more about it and, and working out if it's true. Because it is, it is a good story that changes your life if you believe this. But for most of us here in this room, on some level we already know this story, and on some level we believe it. And the biggest threat that we have, the biggest threat to our faith is the same as Israel's, and it's forgetfulness. We are prone to forget. I don't know if you've ever done that thing where you're you're trying to remember a number, like someone says your number, so you just, you you don't have a pen, so you just keep saying like 981-72631, 981-72631. That's my landline when I was a kid, by the way. Feel free to call it. (laughs) But as you're doing that, some annoying person sees that you're trying to do that, and they just think it's funny to throw off, so they just start saying 7, 4, 9, 2, 8, and you're trying to, as, you, as you're kind of repeating your number and these other numbers are coming from the side, eventually if, it's, if one of those numbers slots in there, you lose the whole thing. I think on some level this is what's going on with us on a day-to-day basis is we're trying to remember the truth of the gospel story. We try to keep it in our minds, but we're just getting noise and either just indirect or direct messages of completely different stories coming in all the time, aren't we? We, we live in a world of distraction. I don't need to go on about how distracting life is. You've all got a phone. You all, you all know that there's, there's a million distractions right there in your pocket at any given second. So you've got that going on. You've got stuff on TV. But there's even more direct, I guess, noise coming in that would have us forget our story. It happens in the news. Turn on the news this week and you read a, a story that you can lose your job for volunteering at a church. And you hear politicians come up and say that Orthodox standard Christian views are completely unacceptable. And that throws you off a little bit, doesn't it? Like that's not a that's not a that's a destabilizing message to hear. You hear counter narratives in advertising or just in even just with chatting with friends and families about what that makes their life good, and you hear these counter narratives of what the good life is. The good life is about comfort. The good life is about ease and experience. And as you hear all this other noise and, and messaging, it is hard to hold on to the truth, isn't it? It's hard just to keep yourself grounded in this story. Because this story is, is centered between things that happened before our lifetime and things we've not yet experienced. And so it is not an easy thing to keep ourselves grounded and placed within it. But that's what we need to do. To be able to live rightly as we should, we need to remember our story. We need to live our life in light of what has happened for us on the cross and the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And so I want to finish this time, as we want to get practical through this book, maybe just laying out three really concrete practical things that we can be doing as a church to ensure that we as a body do not forget our place in this story. So firstly, we need to spend time with God every single day. We have a deep need to begin every day actually knowing what is the story that we're living. It's not by default you just wake up and, and place yourself within the Christian story, is it? It's, it's a reason that one of the key habits for thriving, and if you've experienced a season of thriving as a follower of Jesus, you'll know that as part of that season, most likely, there was an element of reading the Bible and praying. 
And like any habit, like whether it's exercising or eating well, when you're in that habit of, of spending time with God every day and, and hearing from his word and, and responding to him, it, it feels like you couldn't live without it. It feels good and you're, and you're in it. But like any habit, when you're out of the habit, it can be really hard to get back in. And my guess would be in this room, there'd be plenty of people, just because this is life, who are out of the habit of spending time with God each day. And maybe you even feel guilty about that and it's kind of weighing you down and you know you should but you feel bad or you just think, oh, I would, but it's just so hard and it's so boring. I don't want to add any guilt to you today, but I want to encourage you that now is not a bad time for a bit of a fresh start. We're starting a new series. Tomorrow's a Monday. There's three months of the year left. Let's, let's do this. There's, like, it's a good time as ever, right? To, to maybe challenge yourself or commit to even within the first hour of waking every day, just to spend 10 minutes realigning your day around the realities of the gospel. In some manner, reminding yourself that God is with you and for you and bringing his, your day before him and just acknowledging before him that he has died for you, that he's coming back again, that there is hope for you. And to talk to God and just to repeat that every day. And the repetitiveness of this is what some people find hard, but what we need it to be a repetitive task in some ways because we need to be reminded of the same thing again and again and again because we're forgetful. So would you consider doing this? Every term we put up on our website, um, three or four Bible reading plans that actually Anna's put together, depending on what you want to read, where you can just have laid out for you each day a, a section of the Bible to read. And these all start tomorrow, which is how fortunate. Um, <laughs> So this would be a great time to do it. And if that is something you think, yeah, look, I would like to start doing that tomorrow, don't just leave it as, I want to start doing that tomorrow. I'm going to give you three things to do today so that you'll do it tomorrow. So number one, choose a place. Choose a, a concrete, exact place where you're planning on doing this tomorrow morning. Whether that's your bedside table or a desk or a particular chair in your house or your balcony or your, your car seat before you drive to work once you've left the house, whatever it is, choose a physical spot. You're going to do that tomorrow. Secondly, pick a time. Don't just say in the morning. Put a time. Is it going to be 6 a.m., 7 a.m., 7.20 a.m.? Choose an actual time. And I would encourage you to get your phone out, put that in your phone, spend time with God at, at 7.20. And if you're completely out of the habit, even just set the goal during five minutes. Just read one, a few verses and pray for two minutes. Just to, to have a, a real concrete time to do it. And three, to actually choose what you're going to read. Rather than just going into tomorrow saying, yeah, I'm going to read something in the Bible tomorrow, choose what you're going to read today. Don't read it, just but open your Bible and say it's going to be Deuteronomy, to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Put a bookmark in it. Get your pen and your paper if you use that or whatever it is there. Put it in that place you've already chosen so that when tomorrow morning your alarm goes off at, at 6.30 in the morning, your Bible is there ready to go in the place you've set to do it and you can kickstart that habit. And to, and to do that every day for this week and to see if you can actually start growing that habit, so that every day there is some input in the, in the early part of your day to realign your story around the message of the gospel. That's the first thing to do. Secondly, commit to your community. Central to living out the Christian life and experiencing the truth and the reality of the Christian story is involvement in a community and surrounding yourself with people who also hold to that same reality. And that's one of the reasons we gather every Sunday. We, we gather to worship, we gather to, to hear from God, but we also gather in community. We, don't, we could just be brought doing the podcast thing, but we want to be together because there is something about being together that reminds us that we are living in this reality that we need to hold on to, 
When we hear it from, from Claire and, and Paul and Leah up the front about how they're thinking through their life in light of the gospel, that, for me, that just encouraged me to remember to live my life in light of the gospel. When we sing songs like the ones we sung earlier today, just reminding ourselves of the gospel, that is what we're doing. saying, this is good, and it's actually so good that the fitting response is to sing about it. And also, that's why we meet during the week as well. Um, part of being a, a member of City Light is being part of a City Light community where we meet in homes and, and share our lives, sit around a table, read the Bible together, and remind ourselves of this reality. But something has happened over the last few years of COVID and it's not just happened in our context, it seems to have happened all over the place, where we've stopped seeing being together as essential. There's obviously still going to be times when you, you know, we're sick, there's all these colds going around and we can't get to group or to church, and if you're really sneezing, coughing, no one wants you there anyway. But, but, but beyond, that, beyond that, it seems to be the case, the observation a few people have made, is that we've got a kind of a lower bar for the sort of thing that's going to just make us bail on community. And again, I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty, but I am just hoping to just kind of just maybe even just make you aware that is that something that's happening for you? Where you just find yourself that little bit easier to say, oh, no, I don't kind of need that today. Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So again, being practical, we've got 10 more Sundays in 2022 here on a Sunday morning. We've got 10 more midweek groups in the City Light communities during the week. Realistically, you'll probably be sick for two of those. Maybe you've already booked in an important family lunch for one of them. For the rest of them, would I encourage you just to kind of hold that with the same seriousness as you would hold any other important appointment. To actually mark in your diary, to have that time set aside to encourage others to live out the gospel story and to be reminded to do it yourself. That would just be an encouraging thing. That would be just an encouraging thing to, to, be, to have our community strong for the rest of this year. And the third encouragement, the third practical thing to do, is to share this story with the next generation. I don't know if you saw in that verse, just it, and it comes up again and again in the book of Deuteronomy, where it says, make them known to your children and your children's children. Um, there's, I think, part of being maybe an ancient Near Eastern culture as well, they've got just a, a deeper sense of the need to be... To be aiding the next generation with understanding this story. Um, and we've got a responsibility as adults to ensure that this kind of gospel message doesn't end with us. And I think it's the case at the moment that for the first time in a long time in Australia, it's common for kids to not understand the basics of the gospel, to not understand the Bible. There isn't scripture in schools the way that there was even when I was a little kid. People don't have this kind of default understanding of the Christian worldview. And so parents in particular, there is a responsibility not just to look after your own soul and to guard your own heart, but to guard the hearts of your children. Because if they're not hearing this gospel world and story from you, they're not going to hear it somewhere else. And so I, I wonder, do you have time and space in your, your week and your rhythms of how you, how you live as parents where you are shepherding your kids to understand the gospel story? where you're reading the Bible with them and you're giving them space to explore, ask questions and understand the world in light of the Christian story. And if you, you don't have that, maybe you want to be thinking this week about how you can start that ritual in your, in your home, how you can be doing that. And for those here who are not parents, this isn't just a job for parents. Part of our church is kids. That's why out right now out there in a few of the other classrooms, there are some people who aren't parents 
who aren't here listening to me, but they're out there sharing the good news of the gospel with a bunch of kids who need to hear it. If that is, an, that is, that is one way to be serving in our church. If you are interested in, in sharing the gospel with, with kids, we'd love to hear from you. We always need volunteers for those roles. It's, it's, a, it's a fun way to volunteer, um, but we, also, we, just, we need people to do it. And our youth group at the moment is small, but it is growing, and we're, we're hoping that it will continue growing. And if you've got a heart to be sharing with even some, some teenagers and youth this gospel message, we'd love to hear from you because we'd love to get more people involved. So we need to be reminded of this story. That's why we're here. We, we, we're prone to forget. And so right now, what we're going to do as we, as we come into our time of our, our final couple of songs and reflection is we're going to do something that the church has been doing for thousands of years as, as, as a way of remembering the story that we're a part of. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he gathered his disciples around a meal and he gave them some bread and some wine and he, he told them that for as, for as long as it is till he comes back to do this in remembrance of him. And this is, what, this is the account of it in, in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We need to remember what has been done for us. And one way that the church remembers this is just by doing this really this symbolic act of eating some bread, drinking, in our case, some juice, and just a reminder that this has really happened. That Jesus loved us so much that his body really was broken, his blood really was poured out on our behalf. And so we're going to do that together as a community. And the way that we're going to do this is in just a moment, uh, Annie's actually just going to sing a song. And that's just going to be a chance that for all of us just to reflect over that time on the gospel, on the good news of it. And if you're someone who, you're not sure if you believe this, this is all very new to you, there's no pressure for you to join with us in, in taking communion and, and the bread and juice. You can just sit there and listen to this song, um, reflect in whatever way you feel like reflecting or, or think on whatever you want to think on. But for those who do just want to receive this tangible reminder of God's love for us. We'd invite you to, during this song, just um, at any point, just you know, make your way to the back, collect a piece of bread, collect a cup of juice, return to your seat, and then after, and after Annie finishes singing, we'll take that together. But again, this is just a time to reflect in whatever way um, you feel is right for you in the moment. So Annie's going to lead us in a time of song now. Take the bread and the juice if you'd like, bring it to your seat, and then I'll come up and lead us through what's going to happen after that.